So a number of years ago, I had some friends who convinced me to watch the Lord of the Rings series. And it was special. <laughs> if you love that series, God bless you. Um, apparently, I am not a Middle-earth, dark fiction, epic battle, constantly waging sort of a guy. Um, but these friends kept insisting that I watch the series because the original books were written by J.R.R. Tolkien, who was a friend and a contemporary of C.S. Lewis, and it had this redemptive theme that goes through the movies. And the whole time I'm watching, I kept asking myself, is this movie number two, or is it movie number three? Um, like, I, I was waiting for a moment for the plot to actually be shared with me. I, I didn't understand where anything was going, and it never explained the plot. Um, I just knew there was a lot of strange characters and angry armies and gloomy weather. Oh, my goodness, it was the gloomiest weather I've ever seen in my life. There were bad guys and good guys and this unusual obsession with a ring, and quite honestly, it really wasn't even that cool of a ring. So. After hours of watching, I finally got to the place I recognized some characters. I'm like, ooh, I've seen that one before. I didn't know anything about them, but I at least recognized them. That was a step in the right direction. And then also, I, I finally realized that this particular ring had some mystical power for whoever possessed it. That's all I figured out. To this day, I don't know anything else about the movie other than people say it's great, and God bless you if that's your, your idea. So anyway, that feeling of confusion is the way that many people, I guess, feel when they hear about the redemptive story of God as they show up in church. They kind of feel like they showed up 30 minutes late to a movie at the theater. The plot's already going and characters have been developed and action is happening all around them and they just don't understand, like, how do the pieces actually fit together? So on one Sunday, they might come to church and a pastor is talking about Adam and Eve being kicked out of the garden. And then the next week, they come to church and the pastor's talking about the children of Israel wandering in the wilderness and then the next week, they come to church, and the pastor might be talking about, you know, people blowing trumpets and walls falling down. And all along the way, you know that there's God and God's people, and there's Satan, and there is good and evil, and there's redemption. And then you move over into the New Testament, and you find that there's a tone that changes when you go to the New Testament. Jesus, this God-man, comes onto the scene, and everything starts to focus on him, and he starts to pull together this this posse of 12 guys and they start off on this mission and and the mission looks like no other mission that I've ever heard of in fact they're they're not overthrowing governments and they're not trying to bring down a crime wave their mission is to serve people and to love people and they cast out demons and they keep talking about the kingdom of God it's the craziest type of a mission and revolution you're ever going to read about and then just about the time things really start clicking on all cylinders, Jesus dies. The hero of the story dies. The Bible tells us that it, the, the sky goes dark and it's like 
evil is rejoicing. But then three days later, he rises again from the dead. And his disciples are so overwhelmed with what they just experienced and what they see that they are willing to put their lives on the line to take his message to the ends of the earth. And he spent 40 days with them. And during that period of time, he challenges them to take his teachings to others. And and they're willing to do that. And then he ascends back to heaven. And as he ascends back to heaven, he's still saying, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. His story, the gospel story, is this story of redemption. Now, if you've been in church for a while, you might recognize all or parts of what I just said. You might know how all the pieces fit together. But just imagine you didn't grow up in church. And you just drop into a church on a Sunday morning in 2023. And there's just a piece of that story that's being shared. You could spend months, if not years, just showing up and you're like, it sounds good. I got no idea what they're talking about. This redemptive story of God is so unbelievably important. For Christians, we need the gospel proclaimed to us constantly because we recognize that there is the part of our maturity in Christ that flows out of the gospel. We recognize it points us back to the essence of our faith. But even for somebody who is not a believer or they're a brand new believer, they need the gospel proclaimed to them constantly in order to understand the big picture and also to see where they fit into that big picture. So... We enter into Ephesians chapter 2 tonight. And as we get into this section, it has some of the most critically important pieces of the redemptive story of God that are found anywhere in the Bible are crammed into the first 10 verses. These pieces show the condition that God found us in. It, It tells us the reason that we were lost in need of a Savior. It tells us the wonders of how God sees us, the depth of what Jesus went through on our behalf. And it also even shares the framework of what God intends for our lives to look like. The first 10 verses of Ephesians chapter 2 could be some of the most critical verses that you'll find in your Bible when it comes to the story of redemption. Here's my thing. I don't want anybody to be lost in a story that is that important. It doesn't matter if you've been a follower of Jesus for 50 years. I guarantee you there's pieces of the story he's still teaching you in right now. So we're going to take our time. It could easily be five, six, seven, nine, ten weeks that we work through ten verses. And you think I'm joking. I'm not joking. I don't joke about taking time through the word. Tonight we get to like five words out of this section. But we're going to take our time because we're literally laying out parallel rails for a track. On one rail, it's going to be the big 30,000-foot view of the redemptive story of God from what you find at the beginning of Scripture all the way through the end. The second rail is going to be the specifics, the, the key pieces found in Ephesians 2 and how it fits back into that redemptive story of God. I am praying that over the course of the next month, month and a half, two months, however long it is, 
I'm praying God gives us new eyes to see this story for the first time. If you would, join me. Ephesians chapter 2 will be in verses 1 through 3. I'm speaking tonight on the topic, the story of redemption. It says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince and the power of the air, and of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Let's pray. God, we need you. We need you to make this story, these truths, these verses, to be so incredibly clear. God, give us fresh eyes to see for the first time the beauty of the story of redemption. Lord, help us to fully understand how bad the bad news was so that we can celebrate how good the good news really is. In Jesus' name, amen. So chapter number two, it begins with the conjunction and. It helps us to see that what we're about to study in chapter two is a continuation of the thought that was happening over in chapter one, specifically what was at the very end of chapter one. So in chapter 1, verses 19 through 23, the Apostle Paul prayed that we might know the greatness of God's power to us who believe. Uh, God's work requires God's power. And to show us that God's power is unlimited, he gives us four different Greek words that come back to power, God's unlimited power. All of those are found in verse number 19. And then he gives us five verses explaining how unlimited the power of God really is. So he spoke of dunamis, that is power. This is God's unlimited power that is available to Christians. Then he speaks of energeia, or working. That is the energizing force of the Spirit that empowers believers to do as God desires. Then there is kratos, or strength. It is strength necessary to overcome whatever stands in the way. And then there is iskos, or might. That is strength which one has that is latent power, that is endowed power or ability. Then when we go over into verses 20 through 23, he reminds us of Jesus' power being sufficient and complete in every realm of life. Jesus has power over death and power over position and power over angels and power over people and power over all things. Five verses, he explains the depth and the realm of God's power. So chapter 1 ends describing the realm of God's power. Chapter 2 begins with the necessity of God's power. That's your connection that's happening. Why is God's power a necessity? He tells us in chapter 2, verse 1, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. This statement, it sets up a key part of that big redemptive story of God. So here's your key truth for tonight. Humanity is separated from God by sin and incapable of reconciling the relationship. Humanity is separated from God by sin 
and incapable of reconciling the relationship. Now, the Apostle Paul uses three different descriptions as to why humanity has been separated from God because of sin. And I'm going to give you all three descriptions tonight, but we're only going to focus on one of those. So apart from Christ, here's what he tells us. We are dead in trespasses and sins, alive to the lust of the flesh, by nature children of wrath. Those are the three pieces he tells us in the first three verses. Apart from Christ, we are dead in trespasses and sin. You're dead on one side, but look what you're alive to. You're alive to the lust of the flesh and by nature, children of wrath. It's going to take us at least two weeks to work through those three statements. But tonight, it's just going to be the first of those. Apart from Christ, we are dead in trespasses and sin. Whenever the Bible refers to humanity being dead in sin, it's not talking about physical death. It's talking about spiritual death. And sometimes people think of death as the cessation of life, like there's been life, it's now dead. But in this context, when Scripture speaks of death, most often it's referring to the idea of separation. When a person dies physically, their spirit is separated from their bodies. James chapter 2, verse 26. When we died spiritually, our spirit was separated from God. Isaiah chapter 59, verse 2. Death brings separation. Now, spiritual death means somebody does not possess spiritual life. That is, they are unresponsive to God. They are unresponsive to the truths of God. They don't understand. Those things don't make sense to them. They, they can do nothing of themselves to appease God or, for that matter, to reach his righteous standard. They are spiritually dead. Now, I want you to write this passage off to the side in your notes. Romans chapter 5 Verse 12, Romans 5, 12. If you want to understand what's happening here between dead and trespasses and sin, if you want to understand death and sin and separation, this is the passage that you want to begin with. Here's what it says. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way, Death came to all men because all sinned. This one man being spoken of here is Adam. Now, this is huge. Let's connect some of those pieces. Before Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, God warned them of the consequences of disobedience. God said you may freely eat of any of the trees within the garden, but there's one tree you are not to eat of, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then God goes on to actually tell them these are going to be the consequences if you do that. Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. It says, when Adam and Eve ate of the tree of the garden, here's what happened. It said, on that day that you eat of the tree, you will surely die. They did not die physically on that day. They died spiritually on that day. There was a spiritual separation. There was a relational separation that took place between them and God. Now, they were created for relationship. Sin separated the relationship. Okay, that's a part of that big redemptive story of God that's going to come all the way through Scripture. The question now becomes... How does their sin impact us? 
We weren't there in the garden. How does their sin impact us? So here's the best way I know how to describe that. I've got a fine little diagram. Y'all don't make fun of my fine stick people over here. So let's say this is you. This is your dad. This is your granddad. Now, you could go back and you could throw in some other generations if you would like. If you're really fond of your great-granddad, stick him right about here. Here's the thing. We understand on a physical level, if your dad died before you were conceived, you would not have had an opportunity at life. Make sense? If your granddad died before your dad was conceived then your dad and you would not have an opportunity at life. Make sense? Okay, we can understand physical death prior to conception eliminates any future possibility of life. Now, if you were to take that back multiple generations, take it back and think about what it is as far as one generation after another we could go back and say our great 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 grandfather adam who's sitting out somewhere over here when he died spiritually it cuts off the opportunity for spiritual life to those who come after him that is important so listen again to romans chapter 5 verse 12 it says, just as through one man sin entered the world, Adam, he's way over here. And then it says, and death through sin, so death spread to all because all sinned. And you're like, well, well, I wasn't there. I didn't sin. Well, this is a statement now that comes back to nature. Okay? So think about it like this. I'm going to just leave this one up for just a moment. Adam is referred to as the federal head of the human race. That means he is the, the father who represents the human race. Just as children take on the characteristics of their parents, uh, whether or not that is their mannerisms, their habits, their attributes, the DNA, there are, there are pieces that are passed from one generation to the next. Well, Adam's sin nature has now been passed to everyone who has been born of the seed of man after him. Okay, now think about this for just a moment. Like our spiritual great-grandfather, Adam, over here with that sin nature, now that same sin nature has been passed to everyone born of the seed of man after him. That's the reason why you don't have to teach a child to throw a temper tantrum. You don't have to teach a child to lie, to be disobedient. You don't have to teach a child to be disrespectful. It's because that sin nature has now been passed generationally from one person to the next because of the fact everyone who's been born of the seed of man has now received this sin nature. Guess who was not born of the seed of man? Jesus. According to Scripture, he was conceived of the Holy Spirit. It's the virgin birth. 
So we recognize with Jesus, there is now a new man. We got Adam right here, and then we have Jesus. Everyone born of the seed of man is under the curse of sin. They're born with a sin nature. Then Jesus is born, conceived of the Holy Spirit, the virgin birth, not under the curse of sin as we are, not born with the sin nature as we are. Hey, by the way, theology matters. Yeah, that, that piece of the virgin birth, it's not just in there for fun and games. It is a part of the redemptive story of God. Every piece in your Bible is absolutely crucial for telling the story. So now here's what happens. When someone repents of their sin by placing faith in Jesus Christ, Jesus says that person, John 3, has been born again. Okay, you're born first with a physical birth under the spiritual federal or under the, the physical federal head of Adam. When you're born again, you now come under the federal head of Jesus. It is now a new birth. It's a spiritual birth. At one point, we're under the curse of sin. Now we come under the covenant of grace. This is the two men that are being spoken of. Our first birth is physically under Adam. Our second birth is spiritually under Jesus. So now get this. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, where's your federal head out right now as a believer? It's in Christ. Every bit of what we get into in Ephesians, it's in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. At the moment of salvation, a person moves from being under Adam to now being under Christ. We have a new position before God. Now write this passage off to the side. 1 Corinthians 15 verses 45 and 47. It says, so also it is written, the first man, Adam, being a living soul, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Are you seeing the connection between them here? Then it says, the first man is from the earth. The second man is from heaven. One brought death. The other brings life. One man's actions brought separation. The other man's sacrifice brought reconciliation. That's the two pieces, when you're a Christian, you are born again. There is new identity. There is a new head. It is now under Christ. Now, the Apostle Paul uses two words to describe what our sin nature has brought us. He talks about trespasses in sins. You are dead in trespasses in sins. Trespasses means to slip or to fall. It's a word used of a person who they're trying to walk a path and yet they keep straying off of the path. They keep going from one side to the other. We understand that this makes sense because prior to Christ, 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. So prior to Christ, we are spiritually blind. What do you think a spiritually blind person who's dead in trespasses 
who is unable to stay in the lane of God's righteousness, what do you think they're going to do? They're going to stray. They're going to wander. They're going to go off the path. He says, you were dead in trespasses. And here's the second word, in sins. A sin, it simply means miss the mark. It's a word picture that describes a man shooting an arrow at a target and the arrow missing and falling short of that target. So here's what we're going to do. I've got another little page here. We got a target. I'm going to take my target over here. You cannot be laughing yet, Bree. I've not even done anything. I'm just moving my target around. And then, for the low, low price of $20 this last week off of Amazon, I acquired a little sermon illustration here. So here's what we have. Here's where humanity is at. Out there is the target of God's holy, righteous perfection. In our minds, we're over here trying to shoot at this target. And we pull it back, and man, we're going to nail it. But we're unwilling to admit the fact that we can't do it. That was just a bad shot right there. I promise I'm going to get better on this. So we pull it back another time. Hmm. What went wrong there? Ah, I didn't get sleep last night. That must be it. So we're going to pull this one right back out, and we're just going to keep loading them in. And we're going to think every single time the reason that I'm unable to hit the target is because of the fact I didn't have enough sleep. I, I, I don't have enough discipline in my life. You don't know what happened to me in my past. If that past didn't come back to haunt me, I'd be able to nail that thing right now. And in our minds, we keep shooting at the target. And here's the description that we find according to Scripture. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of these arrows represent our best efforts to reach God's holy and righteous standard. And we keep falling short, and we keep falling short, and we keep falling short. And the issue is, we're never going to get to a place that we can use our arrows of what we would consider to be righteousness in order to hit God's target of perfection. And let me tell you why this is so incredible. We are so spiritually deceived as humans, so depraved as humans, that many times we don't even know that's the target. Remember, we're spiritually blind, so we're sitting out here with our bow, and we're shooting over here at the target of, you know, happiness, and then we shoot out there at the target of good intentions, and we shoot a little something up there for morality's sake, and we're just trying to make it up along the way. We're like, if, if everybody would just recognize how good I am and what I'm doing, they should, they should give me credit for that piece alone. Here's what sin is. Sin is falling short of God's holy and righteous and perfect standard. Now, a lot of people are okay with saying, yes, I've sinned. But we have a very bad view of what sin is. We start looking out and we're saying, well, yeah, of course. God should punish those who are rapists or murderers or, or those who have been involved in genocide. Like, that's the big stuff. 
But is God really that upset about a little white lie? Is God really upset that I got struggle with jealousy? I mean, really, like a couple of years in college, everybody goes crazy in college. Is that enough for God to punish me for eternity? We look out there and we judge things based on levels of sin. We think about that's bad, that's worse, that's horrible. But here's the issue. Sin is not defined by bad, worse, and horrible. Sin is a failure to hit the target that has been set by God. So let's say there's an eight-year-old boy who goes into a grocery store and he steals a pack of gum. Up until that moment, his parents would see him as a son. Adults would see him as a child. Classmates may see him as a friend. Siblings would see him as a brother. But the moment he walks out with something that is not his, society now sees him as a thief. It doesn't matter if he stole one pack of gum, five packs of gum, or the entire cash register. The moment you take what is not yours, there's a label that comes with it. Thief. The same holds true of sin. It doesn't matter whether or not you are a hellion like a professional sinner, like you've been doing sin so long at such a level that everybody's like, that person's good at it, like they are bad, like way bad. It doesn't matter if you are on that end or if you've kind of been a goody two-shoes over the course of your life and you've really done nothing wrong. It's not about the magnitude of sin. It's about the nature of sin. Sin separates us from our creator. The central idea that Paul is sharing in verse number one is we have all lost our way. We have all veered from God's path of righteousness. We have all shot arrows at the target of perfection. And it's always come up short. You and I can look in our lives and we can see piece after piece of our life. We're like, I came up short. I came up short. I messed up. I came up short. So here's the thing. What do you do when you just keep falling short? I'll tell you what humanity does. If we can't hit his target, we move the target where we cannot help but hit it. We come through now and we've got our arrows and we now have our adjusted target. And it's all the way pulled back over here. And we're like, bam, I'm awesome. I don't know if you all saw that. I'm, I'm going to try that again. Like here, this is the little time I helped the little old lady across the road. All oh, that was a good moment right there. God's going to be proud of me for that. Here's the moment where I chose not to cheat. God definitely is going to think that's good. And you just keep going through. The issue is, if we can't hit God's target, we try to move his target to something we can get to. We try to widen the lane and say, if I can't stay in his lane, I'm just going to make the lane wider. Listen, it's not our target. It's God's target. We do not have the right in culture to move God's target. Denominations do not have the right to move God's target. Individual churches and individual believers do not have the right to move God's target. It is God's 
holy, and righteous standard. It's his target. So here's what he's saying in the text. He was like, humanity has always fallen short, dead in trespasses and sin, unable to hit the target that was set by God. It doesn't matter if you and I think that our good is good enough or that our right should be enough for God. God alone determines what is good. God does not judge based upon our standard of goodness. We are held to God's holy and righteous standard of perfection. According to Isaiah 64, our righteousness is like filthy rags compared to God's holiness. There's one point where a man ran up to Jesus and he said, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And you may think that Jesus would stop and say, Man, I appreciate you calling me a good teacher. I really practice a lot, and I'm glad somebody sees the effort that I'm putting into my teaching. Here's exactly how you need to proceed to have eternal life. Jesus doesn't do that. His thing, he says, why do you call me good? Because only God is good. He challenges the man's basic understanding of goodness. Humanity has our standard of goodness, and God has his standard of goodness, and they are not the same. According to Jesus, only God is good. So for us, we may do many good things in our own eyes thinking this has to be enough, but our standard of goodness is different than God's standard. One of the greatest questions that a person should ask if they're thinking that somehow their eternal life is being based upon their individual goodness, ask the question, how good is good enough? How good is good enough? If you believe your goodness should be the basis for your acceptance, then how good is good enough? Does God, I don't know, accept 80% goodness? Like 80, that's kind of like a low B. Or does God want 90% goodness? Like that's like a low A. Does God grade on a sliding scale? If it's about goodness, do two good deeds offset one bad deed? Like how, how do we know how good is good enough? Here's another question. What happens if you make a series of really bad decisions just before you die? Like, does God, you know, judge in that moment based upon the last little stretch of the race? Or does he look over the whole course of your life? Does he evaluate based upon your worst moments or your best moments? Like, how good is good enough? If the standard of our acceptance is based on personal goodness, then we don't know what the standard is. Because what might be good for you might be different than good for me. And what might be good for us is different than good for others. And we all know that what is good for all of us is still different than what is good for God. The issue is the fact that only God's holy and righteous standard that we could not reach is what the standard is that we are to judge our life by. I like what Steve McVeigh says in the book Grace Walk. Wouldn't it be awful to spend your whole life trying to make God an apple pie only to die and discover he never liked apple pie? In other words, when we base our acceptance on our view of what we think God likes, 
Wouldn't it be horrible one day to find out God says, but I don't like that. That is the beauty of the word of God. He is telling us today on this side of eternity, I don't like your apple pie. That's not what I'm looking for. That's not the standard. So I want these thoughts to marinate in your mind over the course of this next week. Salvation is not withheld because of how bad we've sinned. No one is so bad that they cannot be saved. Salvation is not extended because of how good we've been. No one is so good that they don't need to be saved. Salvation is a gift of grace made possible by the redemptive work of Jesus. Only Jesus can offer salvation. Peter told the people in Acts 4, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. So what are you supposed to do with this particular message as we leave? Here's the only thing this is about. It's about understanding a key part of the redemptive story of God. Humanity was created for a relationship. Our sin separated us from that relationship. If you're a follower of Christ, here's what else this message, message should do. It should fill you with awe and wonder and gratitude and worship for what Jesus has done for you. Hugh and I were not right outside the gates of glory when he found us. We are dead in trespasses and sin. Think about what Jesus has done to bring you into eternal life. For you to go from death to life, for you to be born again, he had to die on a cross paying the penalty of our sin, rising from the dead that we would experience life and extending eternal life to those who repent of their sin, the very thing that's fallen short of his glory by placing faith in Jesus Christ. It's the story of redemption. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we close out the first part of this section of your word, God, would you help us, Lord? Help us to have clear minds to understand and to receive the, the truths. Help us to see the story of redemption from your perspective. Lord, we're asking that, that we would have new eyes to appreciate what you have done on our behalf. Lord, we'll be grateful. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you all. Have a wonderful evening. See you this next week.